Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would wish to keep safe in a time capsule. They can choose anything personal to them, an object, a place, a person, even a smell, but they can only choose four things that they treasure. The fifth thing has to be something they regret or find embarrassing or even loathsome. My guest this week, talking about his five things, is the stand-up performer, writer and panel game regular, Tony Hawks, who is often heard, or in fact seen, on such shows as Just a Minute, Have I Got News For You, The Unbelievable Truth and I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. But Tony's first big success was with a band called Morris Minor and the Majors. But I'll let him tell you about that. As a writer, he's had several best-selling hits, with such books as Round Island with a Fridge, One Hit Wonderland, and Playing the Moldovans at Tennis. His most recent book is The A to Z of Skateboarding, which was written in response to almost 20 years of being mistaken for the American skateboarder Tony Hawk. Two of his books have been made into films, which he adapted. He was awarded an MBE in 2017 for services to disadvantaged children in Moldova. I hope you enjoy our chat, which was recorded at his home in London, just before lockdown. The first thing I'd like to put in is something that I re-saw recently, and that reminded me, uh, it's, a, it's an odd one, but it's a, it's a tennis court, a grass tennis court in Eastbourne, Devonshire Park, Eastbourne. Uh-huh. And the, I know it. Do you? I know Devonshire Park, Eastbourne. Okay. Yes. Well, well, you know, the, the, that's right, the Congress Theatre backs onto these. Uh, so we were there recently, we did a little touring show of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, the radio show, and, and, and as I arrived to go to the stage door, I saw this tennis court and it took me back to when I was 13 or 14. I used to spend the entire summer holidays playing tennis tournaments. And I remembered this one match I'd played on this court and a ball going over the back of the court and the ball being thrown back by Ronnie Corbett, (laughs) (laughs) who was just going in the stage door. And he was sort of a, you know, a bit of a hero. You know, the two Ronnies were massive and it was a bit like, you know, but, but also he was so small, it took him four attempts to throw <laughs> before he could get the ball back over, over the fence. And I suppose it was seeing it again, it is a bizarre thing when you see something like that. It took me right back to, to that moment. And it wasn't all good because it was, I used to play these tennis tournaments and... Um, it was a huge amount of sort of pressure for a 14-year-old to be under. You'd, you'd sort of be seeded sort of thing, or like you was number four seed in the under-14s or something like that. And I didn't mind playing the number three seed or number two seed or number one seed. But when I played somebody who I knew was good but I was expected to beat, I used to really feel the pressure. I'd struggle to sleep at night and all of that kind of stuff. And you kind of think, why did, why did I allow myself to be put through that? really. At 14? At 14. And I suppose the only thing you can sort of, it must build up a kind of resilience in you to some extent, which you probably need if you go into the business we've gone into. Yeah. Does it? I wonder. Yes, I wouldn't know. I certainly wouldn't push a a child into that. But somewhere along the line, you've got to acquire that. There's probably other ways of doing it that are less painful. And and other people, of course, temperamentally didn't really feel that. So... 
your Andy Murrays of this world actually enjoy that. They don't dislike it. They enjoy it. They, they sort of want it. They seek it out. They want, mm. they want a battle. They want that kind of stuff. Mm. But I remember thinking, you know, sort of midway through a sort of third set and hot and bothered and, and thinking, you know, why am, I, why am I doing this? Just let him win. <laughs> but I couldn't do that annoyingly as well, I suppose. It was a, partly because they probably wound me up at some point and, go, and I'd gone, oh, I don't want to let him win. He, he, he cheated on that point or something like that. Yeah, that was definitely out. Yeah, because we used to do all our own line calls. Mm. You know, you've got one sort of 13-year-old boy just going, out. And you had to sort of argue all. You had to say, well, what do you mean out? It was clearly in. What are you talking? Sort of massive arguments going on <laughs> the whole time. Interestingly, I went to see about uh, three years ago, I went to watch the veterans tennis. So they were, they were different categories. And there was an over 75s male match going on. And I thought, well, perhaps at this stage of life, they'll have calmed down a bit compared to how we were when I, I was 13. They're worse. <laughs> they are worse. They argue more. It's just un- one guy was sort of really getting angry with the other guy because he's saying you're taking too long between points. So they'd have a long rally. And clearly when you're over 75, you know, recovery time is important. <laughs> so he was saying, no, no, you're taking too long. He was furious with him. They were calling each other names. Then I watched an over 75 female match impeccable behavior you know just over generous you know no you have it again you have it you have the point whatever so it's interesting what that says about uh, men and women men and women Mm. so i suppose going back and seeing that tennis court again reminded me of all that stuff you don't Uh, get many grass courts now do you they've all gone nearly all of them and there used to be a grass court in almost every park in the country well they they require such maintenance you know it's extraordinary and you get three four months use out of them a year In yeah. terms of time, and then if it rains, of course, you can't play. So it's really because the All England Club can just afford to, to keep going, and they put artificial lamps over the grass in the winter to fake sunlight and, wow. and create, create the perfect grass. But it has to be a very wealthy body to be able to do that. Most councillors were reasonably wealthy. Yeah. And certainly down in the south, you'd yeah. have lots of uh, lovely parks, all very well-maintained, have park keeper. Yeah. Yeah, Those well, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's another thing I got involved. I got involved in a th- started a charity called Tennis for Free, where we try to get free coaching into park courts and also negotiate with the council to make them free because you cannot get people taking up tennis and enjoying it if, if the first experience they have is somebody asks them for £4 and they can't hit the ball over the net. So how... how the only people who tend to go into tennis are people whose parents are keen on the game. So, mm. Or have a tennis court in their garden. That helps. Yeah. That was Mr Henman, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, and Andy Murray, you know, his mum was a coach. You know, mm. But you don't get, nobody, there's no stories of somebody who works their way up, you know, and, and it just doesn't happen. Unless the parent's into it. And that's what we've got to change, I think, in a yeah. way. Plus, they're there. Tennis courts are there. You may as well use them and have them used by the people who live near them. That's good for everyone, surely. That uh, yeah, uh, exercise. Yeah, but you've kept up tennis, even though you obviously were annoyed by the fact that you had to be quite so competitive yeah. at fourteen. You've kept that up right through your life, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I mean, at one point, I was uh, I was three years in a row. I was British Equity Tennis Champion. <laughs> I have to say, that says nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was quite a funny tournament, actually, because um, there were very few actors who could play tennis to a decent level, really. Really? Probably two or three, really. Uh, Angus Deaton has always thought he could. Well, Angus isn't bad. He's not bad. I've played with Angus a few times. But um, this, of course, this sort of argument about tennis and how good you are led to me writing a book, playing the Moldovans at tennis. Yeah. I was arguing with Arthur Smith about how good I am at tennis and, and, and we, he bet me I couldn't beat all the footballers we were watching this tennis match. And I was saying, well, footballers, good sportsman, good eye for a ball, but actually technique and also this, this experience that you have of, like, how to win tennis matches over four, year, four summers or four or five summers of playing matches all, yeah, all yeah, yeah. You sort of suss out. What you do is you, 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 somebody can be brilliant in, in the hitting up and then when you start playing a match, you might lose the first set. And you, you, by the end of that, you've got all this information. You've, got, you've gone, OK, 
I, I won't come to the net on his backhand. His backhand's stronger than it, but he doesn't like this. He doesn't. He doesn't like volleying. So you mm. play the ball short, bring him to the net, do that. And if you do that well, they start suddenly. They're not playing as well in their head. But actually, you created them not playing as well yeah. because you've got them playing on their least favourite shots all the time. And they very often get angry, and then you sort of come back. And, and that's what Andy Murray's. He, he changes it around. You know, he has to. You have to change it around. So I guess that's the thing, the ex- experience of doing that. Mm, so but, it was a good bet. I was there the night yeah. that you, uh, you presented ah, the results. Did you come to that night? I did. Should have put, should have put that actually maybe in, in the time capsule. Can I have that night in as well as part of the same bet? <laughs> well, next to your tennis court. Yes. I think that was an extraordinary night, wasn't it? It was. It was just a presentation of the, all that evidence and everyone just having a great time, as right. I remember it. Yeah. Do we need to explain this to the listener roughly? Well, that you'd beaten nearly everybody. You yes, I'd beaten ten, I had to beat the 11 uh, footballers in the Moldovan team. I'd mm. beaten 10, and the last one had, was now playing their tennis in, in Israel. And I was sort of told, oh, you better watch out for him. He's, got, he's taken up tennis. He's playing regularly. He's very good. <laughs> so I, I found this bloke. And it was all remarkably easy to find him. Because, you know, Arthur said, oh, we know where he is, blah, 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 and put me in touch with someone that knew, and uh, we arranged this match. And I lost to this bloke. But a couple of days later, I sort of saw a picture on the back page of the, the sports thing, and it was a, this bloke didn't, he was in the picture, he didn't look anything like the bloke I'd played, Marin Spino, his name. <laughs> so this guy was a tennis coach from the You've local... been tennis. set up. I've been set up. But I thought, well, I won't let Arthur know that I, I've, I then went back and found the real guy and beat him and didn't tell Arthur I'd done this. So when we had our presentation of the evidence, I pretended I'd lost. Yeah. So and it was and good... the, the penalty was to, to yeah. sing the Moldovan national anthem naked in, in Ballam High Street. Which, which even if I'd lost, Arthur would have taken his clothes off and done that anyway. Because <laughs> he wouldn't have wanted me to be There's the no centre of attention. <laughs> Tony's getting all the attention. I'm taking mine off as well. Because <laughs> I think at one point he was sort of about to, to spill the beans and then he didn't sort of thing. He was going to go, I know that Tony knows that I didn't win. You know, but he saw it through in the end anyway. Because mm. <laughs> we wanted to create a show at the end, really. Yeah. You know, and uh, a theatrical moment. It really was. Yeah. I think it was... I enjoyed it so much that I thought it was a show you could have taken on tour, <laughs> yeah. just presenting those videos and telling the story. Yeah. I, but it, you would need to have a video of, of... Did you ever get a video of, of Arthur? Yes, yeah. It's all there somewhere, in wow. some attic somewhere, all the video of him doing it. and uh, You should tour it. find it out. Well, the nice thing about the things that I've done with, the say, Round Island with a Fridge, playing the Moldovans at tennis, and, and in fact, also the third book, which was called One Hit Wonderland, mm. Um, that had an extraordinary story of, of, of me going to Albania with Norman Wisdom. Yes. But the nice thing about those things is they are kind of timeless stories because you, they don't, it's, not, it's not a less interesting story because it happened 20 years ago. No. It's, in fact, in some cases, a little bit more interesting because, especially in the case of Albania, you know, the country's changed dramatically since then and so has Moldova, what have you. So you can keep just telling a nice story over and over again. So you, I, if, if I want to at some point, I could say, right, I'm just going to go on tour and, and tell this story. You know? Yeah. yeah. But you've also done work in Moldova, haven't you? Yes. You've got a charity there, haven't you? Yes, well, I set up a care centre there for, for kids with cerebral palsy. Which So that was, that was kind of because when I was there, I'd never seen so much poverty, really. No. It's, it was and still is the poorest country in Europe. And, and I was thinking, well, look, I'm here trying to win this very silly bed. But I'm going to go back and write a book for which I've got an advance. And I'm, I'm using this country, really, for raw material. I owe it something. So I, in my, to just to, for my own sake, really, I went, well, I'll just make a deal. If I'll put 50% of whatever I earn into a fund and we'll give it back to Moldova. So there was enough at some point to do something when I rang the two doctors I'd stayed with and said, look, we've got, you know, this amount of money. What, what could we do in this country? Mm. And they said, well, what happens is, you know, we, we hate seeing it, but we see all the, the state encouraging people that have a child with cerebral palsy or any disability to give them up and, and put them into these so-called orphanages or homes where they were treated and abused. And, uh, 
we'd like to set up a center where you know we can treat people they come in every you know every now and again for a bunch of sort of two weeks of treatment then go away we show them how to do the treatment and they can stay at home and uh, so that's been going about sort of i don't know how long it can't be far off 20 years now no that's and I, amazing yeah that's really laudable yeah. i mean my attitude to it is actually that it's enlightened selfishness so i think you know i go there you know pretty much every year and you you sort of get mothers that sort of throw themselves at you not in that way unfortunately <laughs> just sort of just so grateful to you and hug you and, and tell you about their what they've gone through and you're rather touched by it but mm. i think what you do is you come away definitely feeling better about yourself you you you're able to say you know i'm an okay bloke you know whatever else happens i'm an okay bloke and i do that for me i don't do it for them actually you know i mean so yeah, well, a lot of times people say, oh, you're very good. And I always say, no, I'm actually just looking after myself. Yeah. And I think if you can get that into people's heads, that's when you see a very different world. That altruism is fundamentally selfish. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think it is. Yeah. And it's been proven to be that, in fact, you know, that, that you get more uh, of, of different oxytocin, various chemicals flow to your brain when, you, when you're, you give and you do something generous. So why are you seeking a yacht? Mm. Why are you seeking something that actually doesn't do that? And that's not really on the table enough as, a, as an argument. Because if you teach children that, and they genuinely recognise it as being good for themselves, because I think we are, we are fundamentally selfish. You know, we, we've got to look after ourselves. I, I do. You know, I'm not, I know I'm not a good person. I know I make sure I've got enough first. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you need some sort of deep religious conviction in order to be able to, to really suffer ahead of someone else. You've got to possibly to believe even that you could argue is selfish because you could say, well, what you're doing there is you think you're going to get your reward in the next life. So even in, in that situation, you're going, we're still hardwired to put ourselves first. So what you do is you just say, well, look, I, I recognise that it doesn't serve me to get more and more stuff but it does serve me to go, well, you know, I've got enough. I've made sure I've got enough. So this bit, I'm going to do this with it. Yes. Yeah. So the thing that religion did during the Victorian age, which made very successful people think, well, I have to look after these people because God said I have to. When that disappears, it has to be a personal moral viewpoint. I think so, but I think people feel but you can that. argue on the basis that actually, look, it's selfish. It's good yeah, for you. It's good. You'll I mean, do well out of it. Yes, in other words, you don't say to people you're, you're good. I mean, there's some kind of negative around being a goody-goody, isn't it? When you're growing up, you sort of, you know, you don't want to be thought of being a goody-goody in a way. You want to have a bit of a rebel about you sort of thing. But, I, I, you know, the people have it naturally. You know, it's um, the reason why telethons and, and all these things do well is actually what they do is they, they tap into that in people and they go, well, you know, you look around your kitchen and you see you've got running hot water, you've got all the things you need and you see a child starving or whatever and, and you, that's your, your guilt thing kicks in or you just your natural sense of fair play kicks mm, in. Mm. And that's what we're not terribly good at, at doing. That's disguised the whole time. That's kind of hidden away. And, and there's been quite a bit of research into the, the, the super rich give, give less money on a, on a kind of percentage scale than poor people do because what they have to do is look away much more because otherwise that rather painful guilt thing kicks in. Yeah. So they did. So they learn to ignore it. Yeah, they did interesting research just in, in, in L.A. where they, they, took, they, did, they set something up where somebody needed some help by a, by a zebra crossing something and they kind of saw who stopped to help and what cars stopped to help. And it was nearly always the bashed-up cars that stopped. Mm. I'm hitching, I remember, when you hitchhiked, you used to get a sort of a leap of anticipation when a, a rubbish car came along, because you thought, chance of a lift. You knew that the BMW <laughs> would never stop. You know, the, the fancy cars don't stop for hitches. So I think what happens is people get more and more and then they don't want to be confronted with the injustice of how things are. So the only way they can sort of get through is by kind of pushing it, blank, you know, putting it out. And then maybe making some big gesture at a, at a, at a charity auction mm -hmm. where everybody thinks how wonderful they are. Yes. It's that kind of thing. Well, all right, so we take that lovely tennis court. 
Devonshire Park, yeah. We'll take the Devonshire Park grass court. Yes. Oh, oh it's oh, yeah. so Eastbourne, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to put that in the time capsule. That's okay. Well, that's, that's your first item. Yeah. Okay, so what's the next one? The next one is um, circus tents. Um, but I suppose a particular circus tent would be the one that I'd, I'd put in there, which was the uh, Moscow State Ice Circus in Edinburgh, probably about, again, sort of 20, 25 years ago. And it's just because it reminds me of a very silly thing that happened that was such fun, but I was the sort of fool in this situation. I, there was a, you may remember him, there was an, a, an agent and a manager called Pete Brown, Mm. who used to look after Griff Rhys-Jones and Mel and Griff and various people. And for a while, he looked after Morris Minor and the Majors. And um, sadly, he passed away with a, uh, from a brain hemorrhage, only aged uh, 39, I think he was, which I remember at the time. I thought, God, that's old. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he, um, we did a benefit for him in, in uh, Edinburgh. And it was one of these late-night things. And we'd done another show, and we had to turn up at the back of this massive circus tent and uh, came in through the back way and I was doing this show at the time with Arthur Smith called Arthur Smith Sings Andy Williams and so we did our act as it were to this sort of packed tent um, and got to the bit where we did that song I love you baby you know I, you're just good to be true can't take my eyes off you that there's all the melodic bit, and then it goes crazy with da 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 da. And I, at that point, I snatch the microphone off Arthur and do a sort of, you know, it's like this is my moment. I've been suppressed all the way through, and here <laughs> I. And it was a carpet there, and and then a, a gap, and then the audience. And I thought, well, this is going so well. There was such a cheer when I took the mic. I'll, I'm going to go and work the audience, and sort of. So I stepped off this carpet, and my feet went from under me and shot up into the air. And I landed in, in, a, in a heap and the microphone span across the ice and the, the biggest laugh that you could ever... And it was the, the show that was in there that I didn't know was the Moscow State Ice Circus. <laughs> and I'd stepped off the carpet and onto this ice rink, essentially, <laughs> which everybody else knew about. <laughs> because I'd come in the back way, I just didn't realise. And it was... I remember Roger McGough told me later that he was crossing Waverley Bridge... And he heard this laugh and said, I do not understand what could have happened to have created a laugh of that size. <laughs> you know, it was almost like <laughs> seismic kind of laugh because I guarantee that every single person there laughed. It's the, Raw, was, the, Yeah, raw. There was not a person that would go, don't get that, don't get that joke, or that's not my... <laughs> you know, this was slapstick at its absolute best. Because there was hubris in it as well, you know. There was me thinking I'm doing so well, I'm isn't this going well. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> it had every comedic uh, requirement to get <laughs> to get a laugh. You know, lack of knowledge, you know, all, all that's it. innocence, well, all the things. But just and, and I got. <laughs> you sort of could never fake it. Could you, you could never. You could never do that again because it was like the shock on my face as well. I mean, I, I did have quite a bad bruise. I wasn't hurt. But I got up and tried to carry on. <laughs> and it was impossible to carry on. And then you got to, as I tried to carry on, there was a second laugh, he said. <laughs> Arthur had sort of obviously totally lost it, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> It's you slithering about. That's right. You're trying to grab the mic. That's right. And I kept, <laughs> kept trying to sort of get back into carry on. And obviously, he, Arthur was milking it for everything it was worth. It, it, I like the fact that actually that's a that's a mistake, but you still have the the comedic knowledge to go. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Well, it, yeah, it, it's uh, you can't beat slapstick, you know, when it's done well. But this, I suppose, this is accidental slapstick, yeah, which is even funnier, best. even funnier, because you know, when you know when you're watching something and it's set up, you still laugh. But it's, 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 this is why audiences love it when things go wrong. Mm. And actually, it's, you know, if you get out of it in a clever way, they love it even more. I was at a, a, a summer fete and with a full pint of lager, just chatting to somebody I'd hardly met before really in one of those things and a wasp came at me and I just sort of reacted the way you do and I just basically threw a pint of lager over this bloke I just <laughs> just met just threw it full full over him. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, I can't... Was something I said? Yeah, well, I, yeah, the poor guy was sort of... And I was like, I'm terribly sorry. But he... I threw, I'm sorry for throwing a pint of lager over you. But I couldn't laugh at, as much at that as I actually wanted to. No. Because it was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so this love yeah. of, of the, the unexpected, is that yeah. what's led you down the, the improv route, do you think? I think so. I mean, I genuinely do like not knowing what's coming next. And I think that's quite a healthy thing, in a way, on a sort of philosophical note. So when I suppose that there was a point in my life when I sort of almost made a career out of it. So I took on this bet, I'd hitchhike round Ireland with a fridge. What interested me most about that was I just liked the idea of trying to find out what would happen if you put a fridge by the side of the road in Ireland and stuck your thumb out. And I didn't know the answer to that, and, I, and nobody could know. Um, and that's why, you know, it was, it would, it subsequently, actually, it's very difficult to sell these ideas to, to people, especially particularly television, because they actually go, well, we want to know what's going to happen. And you say, the point is, I don't know what's going to happen. That makes it completely unsaleable. Really. Yes. And so the only reason, you know, I, I wasn't going to write a book about that till I, till I got on the journey and thought, this is so incredible, I've got to try. And, and, and then, of course, I had something to pitch then, which is this, this story and this is how it's unfolding. Mm. But it would have, you know, no, nobody wants that. They want certainty. And to some extent, that's what I think can create a lot of suffering and in, in unhappiness in life, in that this sort of need to know you've got everything sorted out, you know, you've got the house sorted out, you've got the partner sorted out, you've got the job sorted out, you've got all this. And, of course, life has brilliant ways of coming along and upsetting that particular apple cart, you know. But uh, even if it's just little things, you know, that, that can get in the way. And also, it's like if you're hitching, you know, you can't plan ahead. You don't know where you're going to be. You sort of, you can't, you just look vaguely at a map and go, well, I might get to Galway. I might not. I don't know where I'm going to end up. Anyway, I, I found this all rather liberating when I was doing it, rather than stressful. I, I thought, this is great. I love this. I love not knowing where I'm going to be. Um, so I suppose that, that's kind of, yeah, the unexpected again. You just, uh, the, trick, the trick to life is to kind of be ready to enjoy whatever does come along, mm. not to try and control what it is. So... Mm. I created a little thing which I did put in the book Round Island with a Fridge, which is sort of fridge philosophy, <laughs> as I called it. But it is that thing. I had one decision to make every day, which was what side of the road am I going to put the fridge on? <laughs> Massive de- de- decision. But that's your direction, and that's yeah. what we need. We do need direction, and we need commitment to things, and I was committed to doing it. I didn't give up. But So you need a mixture of commitment and direction really mm. and, and then the rest you just trust that you're going to have good experience trust that people will come and help you i mean you'd never hit if you didn't think people would help you no and yet you know a lot of people assume that people aren't going to help them but most people most people are kind and nice really and your trick is to, to find that even if they're not displaying that to start with mm. In a way, give them the opportunity. Well, that's that thing, that business that happened recently on the, on the bridge, you know, when the guy ends up being a hero and saving somebody and he's on parole for murder or whatever whatever the details were. And there's always a good bit in someone and, you, you know, you, our job is to tap into that. My, that's my thinking. Mm. Brilliant. <laughs> well, well said. So, uh, no, all right, well, I'm going to take this circus tent yes. with an ice floor <laughs> that's and right. put it in there so you can have a little slip around any time you like. That's lovely. Okay, third item. Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts, but we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what else Tony Hawks would like to put in his time capsule. The third item would be leather seats of an old vintage Morris Minor. So I think there's something about leather seats in old cars. I don't know how they managed to get as sort of wrinkly and as wonderful as they are, and yet sort of still seem pristine in 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 a funny sort of way, have a lovely smell about them. And I had a Morris, I had a a very old Morris Traveller, and uh, it had these leather seats. 
And one day I kind of had this idea, well, it's my dad's idea, to be fair. He said, why don't you write a song about Morris Minor Cars? And I thought, well, well initially I thought, what a stupid idea that is. <laughs> but then I was just sitting at the piano one day, sort of tinkering around, and I did sort of come up with a, a sort of tune in a song. It was called Morris Minor, um, including the line, I've had some treats on my leather seats. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I thought, well, but that was... That, that led, funnily enough, that song and, and the leather seats, if you like, led to me having an entire career with a little group called Morris Minor and the Majors. Cause mm. Well, not a little career. Well, <laughs> a big career. It's a, a big little career, I wouldn't yeah. call it. But I, um, yeah, the, I had the song and I entered it for a song competition. I entered it to, I think I sent it into a talent, com- t- talent show called, uh, what was the show called? The, uh, oh. So John Sparks was in it as well. We'll have to phone oh, him up and ask him what it was called. Um, it'll come to me that anyway. I'll, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll say that down the phone in about three weeks' time, and you can edit it in in a very clunky way. <laughs> <laughs> it was called the Fame Game. Uh, anyway, it was a. Ta- it doesn't matter. It was just a talent show, and they said, "Oh well." we love this song, you know, what are you? And I said, well, I'm a solo act. And they said, oh, that's a shame, we've got enough solo acts. I said, well, no, I I did it with the band, actually, you know, I could use the band I did it with. And they said, well, what are they called? And I went, Morris Minor and the Majors, just sort of, you know, and they didn't exist, and we were sort of booked to go and do an audition for this thing (laughs) with a band that didn't exist. So I rang these two friends of mine that I'd worked with on various things and just said, do you fancy working out a little silly routine just for this one audition and we and we got on the show and um then we got booked to do sort of cabaret gigs and things you know and we we all came completely the wrong way around and then we did eventually did saturday live with ben elton doing this song i'd written called stutter rap and then virgin records rang up and said that make a good single (laughs) and suddenly we were in the charts suddenly yeah on top of the pops being introduced by people who are mostly in prison now (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and rightly so. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. But that was extraordinary. So leather seats, I think. And I, So when I ever get in the car, which is very rare, where they do have those old leather seats or whatever, I, I kind of think that, that takes me back to, to that moment. And also there's something, I suppose, about the quality in which things were made around that period, you know, that, that, that something was made well enough to be able to last 70 years and still still be as good as it was, sort of thing. Yes. That was a time when I think the built-in obsolescence was not a requirement. You had you used good material, you made things well, mm. and then you could fix them also if they didn't go well. Mm. So that, yeah, leather, leather seats represent that for me in cars. Not, I don't particularly like leather seats anywhere else. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. In fact, there's also, I mean, I'm like this with a lot, I'm sure a lot of people are, but, you know, you, you, you kind of, the day you give away your, or throw away your last bit of technical equipment, somebody points out something it did that you had no idea it could do. Or there should be a washing machine just made for men that has three settings on it. You know, very dirty, quite dirty, not that dirty. And that's it. And you just put it on one of those three. I mean, what is on a washing machine is mind-boggling. You yes. know? It's just... And it's not neat. Men don't need that at all or want it, you know. What you want for men is one that says, quick, bloody easy wash. Get this out of the way as quick as possible, basically. <laughs> we digress. Yeah. No, well, that's fine. Digressing is good. <laughs> but we're, we're going to definitely take the lovely, lovely... I'm going to, I'm going to buff them up a bit for you. Yes, seats thank you. Morris Minor Traveller. Yes, yes it was a Morris Traveller I had, which... Mm. Had the wood, of course, which enabled. Yeah. Um, I remember it was when Damon Riveridge once in one of his shows. It was he, he was in Oxford, I think, and a Morris Traveller went by and he went, "Oh, look, a half-timbered car." <laughs> 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 okay, so we've got um, got two more items: one that you yeah. you like, and one that you yes. are glad to get rid of. Well, the other thing I've picked to put in there is unusual, but it's a pillbox. So the the pillbox, the sort of things that they used for defences in the Second World War. You still sort of see them around. Every now and again you'll see one in a field mm. or if you go near the coast, somewhere near Portsmouth or Dover or whatever, you see them around the place. And I like these for, for two reasons. One, as a, a sort of reminder, in a way, just as a reminder of 
the 20th century, you know, which is gone now, but just that not that long ago, it was a very real possibility that this would be an occupied country and, and all the suffering that everyone went through at that period. So a little bit of history which you don't see in an unpreserved way. They're not tourist attractions, they're just there. Mm. And, 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 but the other reason is because they remind me of uh, the bunkers that were all over Albania when I went to Albania for my third book that I wrote called One Hit Wonderland. I had to have a hit record somewhere in the world within two years mm. and I'd been failing horribly. And I had this idea, I had a chance meeting with Norman Wisdom and um, at my publisher's, he was renewing the rights on a book and we just sort of said hello. And then I remembered as I left that he's, he was huge in Albania. Uh, they, Enver Hodja, the dictator there, had banned all Western films except Norman Wisdom films. And he, he, loved, he loved Norman Wisdom. So this ruthless, cruel dictator banned every film that was, came from the West except and they used to watch Norman Wisdom films all the time. And... Uh, he became like a godlike figure, Pipkin or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I thought, well, I wonder if I could persuade Norman to do a duet with me. We could release that in Albania and it would help me to win the bet. <laughs> and then I, I did a just a minute after I'd had this idea and I sat next to Tim Rice and he asked me what I was up to and I told him about this bet. And I said, you don't fancy writing a song with me for Norman Wisdom to release in Albania, do you? And he went, yeah, I'd love to do that. <laughs> So basically, Tim wrote some lyrics, sent them to me, and I, I had to write some music for it. And he was currently working with, at that time, with uh, Elton John, so it was a bit of pressure. <laughs> but uh, I did something, and he liked it much more than anything Elton had done, obviously. And, um, and he agreed to come to Albania as part of my band, you know, Norman Wisdom and the Pitkins, we were, and I was a Pitkin, and so was Tim Rice, and so were his kids. And we, we toured around Albania, basically and had this extraordinary week there. And they were everywhere with these bunkers. I mean, it was like Hodger, what he did was he wanted to create fear, like any great dictator or whatever. You, ha you stay in power by making people fearful of, of, of something. And he made them terrified that America were going to, and the West were going to invade, even though there was not much there to invade for, nothing of any worth, fruit. I might have sort of made a dash for some fruit. But... Um, Send in the troops. <laughs> that's right. But they were literally every sort of hundred yards or so, these bunkers that are all over the place. If you've ripped them out now, they're sort of almost like... Um, it's almost like that thing, we don't, we don't want to remember that terrible period. But uh, that's, I suppose there's one in a ho the main hotel in Tirana they've kept in the, at the back. But so when I see a pillbox now, I think of uh, I think of that trip as well, mm. Albania, and uh, again a sort of a silly period of my life, and it was was great fun. I mean, what, the reason why that was needed that trip was you didn't sell any records to get in the charts in Albania. It was done on airplay on the radio and votes. So this was good because I'd, I'd made a mistake taking on this bet in a way because all my bets up until then had been, had been nothing at stake other than the, the sake of this rather silly bet. Of course, if I was going to have a hit record, I was going to generate money and, and income for, for people. And it, it, it then it, it's, that made it rather murky, that muddied the waters in a way because it was like sitting down trying to do record deals. And, and, it, and this there was nothing on there. This was like, once again, it was free because it was like, Nobody was going to make any money out of it. And I suppose, in a way, that's influenced me a bit. In, you know, I want more and more things to be free for people to do and more, more money taken out of things more and more, you know, because money is just permission. And what you do is you, you, you don't give permission to lots of people to do stuff because you say, well, no, if you haven't got that, you can't come in. I, I set up tennis for free for that reason, you know, um, because people couldn't go on park courts and play tennis because there was a sign-up saying a ticket must be purchased before play. The courts I learned on in Brighton, it was £6 an hour when I went back there and had a look, and it's signed saying OAPs, £5. <laughs> Massive reduction. <laughs> so whatever. generous. But I thought, well, you know, you could take that sign down and put a sign-up that just said, no, very poor people. Yeah. And that's true. And in fact, that's what those signs should say so that people get more cross about it. 
because it's like, you know, it is saying no very poor people. Yeah. And it's a public facility. It's something that you want people to do. You want people to be healthy. So we, we do these, we score these amazing own goals in our society or our culture, really, where we, we just stop people from doing I've seen kids playing on tennis courts at sort of 8 o'clock at night in the summer being turfed off by a public employee uh, for not having paid their money for the courts. And then, and then all the courts are then empty. Yeah. And you kind of think, well, who did that benefit then? And now they'll go and let someone's tyres down. Nice one. Well done, you know. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah, well, well done you. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, isn't it? My mother went to school with Norman Wisdom. Really? Mm. Did she didn't keep in touch with him, did she? No, no. Although my father, my father knew him a bit as well right. when he was first starting. And I think he went to see a show that he did in a, in a park again. Is it, right, these right, week, okay. Shows yeah, in yeah, the park during the right. summer for yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah. So he actually performed with him in this show, got up and sang oh, a wow. song with him. So we have that strange connection. Yeah. Both sung songs, my dad and you. Uh-huh, with Norman. With Norman <laughs> Wisdom. Poor old Norman. He never learnt this song properly, so I had to give him a big, great big microphone for him to hide behind when he was miming, because he couldn't, he didn't know the words. Or, you know, <laughs> know he was 88 at the time. Yeah. So um, that's four things we've got in there. That's now. right. Oh, my word, this is whizzing by. Well, the thing that I weren't going to put in Bad to See the Back of is, again, I mean, as I was sort of thinking of these things, it's funny that quite a lot of them sort of slotted into one of the books I'd done. But I suppose, in a way, it's a sort of, They've been like little journeys for me, these books. Each one I've... Not only do you do a trip, but then you spend six months writing about it and analysing it in, in depth in a, in a way that you'd never... You don't really ever get the opportunity to analyse anything. No. So, and I think that was a sort of... That was lucky that that happened. Because it made me more thoughtful about things. But um, I want to put in a state-run shop that I went into in Moldova... This was the most extraordinary thing. So I went in uh, 1998. So they'd been out of communism for about five years or so. Not that long, really. So they were then... They had inflicted on them and still have a sort of the most brutal capitalism that's sort of on the market, which is the only people that had any idea, any idea at all how a market economy worked were gangsters because everyone else had just been told what to do, where to go, and had just done it obediently, otherwise they were terrified. So the countries, all those countries, just got taken over by gangsters who basically sold everything off, bought, you know, and became obscenely rich. Mm. But there were these sort of hangovers from them still, which so there was a state-run shop. So this was from the other point of view. So I could already see the ludicrous nature of how a brutal capitalism was, was, all, was an awful, evil thing. But I could also see how a state-run shop didn't work either. So I, go, I went into this state-run shop and it was, it was basically a, run by women for some reason who were all kind of quite old and all wearing coats because there was no heating in this place, coats and gloves. And... You'd sort of go and see them, and they, it, it was almost like they'd been trained in how to treat you badly or, you know, <laughs> or, or how to be rude or how to avoid eye contact, how to touch anything. And it was, I didn't really speak any Russian or Romanian, which is what they speak there. I tried to learn a bit of Romanian. And I was struggling to get what I wanted. And it was the opposite of someone that would try and help give you a helping hand. It was like, no, no that's it, you know, throw the head back, look the other way. And that was just one, then you've managed to get something that was roughly like what you wanted. You've never got what you wanted because they weren't looking where you were pointing or whatever. They <laughs> eye contact with that. <laughs> and, and then they'd send you, and the, what, the way the payment system worked and anyway, and the decor in this place, nobody cared about it. And it, there was an absence of... They also went to a state-run cafe as well later, and that was another thing where, you know, it's just nobody cared what anything looked like. There was no sense of pride around the place they kind of hated it for some reason so do you think it's because it was the state was bad or or because they just didn't care they for whatever reason didn't care the, the people the state was probably corrupt that was the problem i mean i think for something like this to work you've all got to engage in it and think you know we're all in this together haven't you but mm. that 
that ceased to happen. Whether it ever existed in the first place, I don't know. So that was, in a way, a sort of marker to me to know that, um, you know, if you're sort of leaning a bit to the left, you've got to remember to go, well, we've got to do this in such a way that people can still have a sense of pride in building something themselves. And, and I'm quite entrepreneurial in a way. I like thinking of ideas and going out and doing them. And I don't want to have to sit in front of a petty party official who will say... I'm sorry, Mr. Hawkes, but um, we have no call for somebody to go around Ireland with a fridge at the moment. But what we really need is for you to hammer this into, into that for the rest of your life. <laughs> so, but I am, I do think, I'm quite egalitarian, so I do think that, you know, I shouldn't be miles richer than somebody else. Not miles, I don't mind being a little bit richer, that's all right, but if, especially if I work a bit harder, if I choose to. So... I never became very left-wing because, because of that experience, because I saw what can happen, unfortunately, when the state runs things, is for whatever reason people stop engaging with it in the way they ought to. And there might be a way of sorting that out, but uh, I haven't yet seen it. I mean, even as I was growing up in England, you know, or Britain, there was that whole thing of, like, you know you got this sense that you could never get any decent service because nobody really cared. No. Uh, and, and but also now, that sense that it wasn't your responsibility. Yeah. You know, the state will do it. Yeah. Or it's, or it's someone else's department. Yeah, it's know. not my job. Yeah. But now what you get instead is you just don't get a human being. You just <laughs> phone up and you just get, you know, <laughs> a, a series of options. Uh, <laughs> All... All basically saying no. Well, exactly, yeah. Well, press option six if you'd like to get increasingly more furious <laughs> with this setup. <laughs> Go to our website, which involves us not having any paid staff yes. to, to man it or run it. But um, so that was it. And I suppose the, there was a kind of also a, a kind of, kind of glamour in a way about going to a, a state run shop. Because it, it felt like I'd got... There haven't been many movies and, and things made about the sort of communism and what that was like, but you may, I had sort of memories of, of seeing this kind of bleak world. And then I walked into it and, and, mm. and saw for real what it was like to see people really... No-one laughing. All the people that ate there looking glum, just getting on with the job of getting food inside them in a functional kind of way in an extraordinarily functional place with people. It was just the bleakest mm. place I've ever been in a way, uh, where human beings are anyway, seemingly doing something that could, could be fun. It was the opposite of a French lunch. Yeah. <laughs> French, Italian, you know, wine flowing, you know, middle of the day, wine still flowing. I've seen people in France, you know... A, 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 a bunch of roofers going. I knew they were roofers because they were talking about it. But and you kind of think you are I'm watching how much they drank and thinking you're about to climb back up on a roof. This afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. Yes, I sat in a, um, I suppose, a motorway cafe. Yeah. A huge place with great big long tables in it, and I went in very very early in the morning yeah. and sat down with a coffee and a croissant, and um, one other man came in, the lorry driver. And he got his croissant and his coffee and his goot. And in this huge room, he walked over and sat down next to me and said, Bonjour. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, in England, yeah. we would have sat as far apart as possible. <laughs> yeah. But just because it would have seemed impolite to go and sit down near someone yeah. when there was, you could yeah, sit yeah. away from them. Yeah. And I really loved that cultural difference. Yeah. Yes, it's it's funny the way that's the kind of way I think the British sort of got that reputation, didn't we, for sort of the, the stiff upper lip, the not the, the coldness, the, the the lack of friendliness, sort of thing. Standoffish a bit. Yeah, a bit standoffish. Partly out of a sort of false belief that it was impolite not, you know, to behave in that way. To interfere in other people's lives. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, that's what I liked about Ireland. You know, you would go in a, a pub. Admittedly, I had a fridge with me, but. <laughs> <laughs> You do forget that. Don't yes. You? Oh, sorry, I've got a fridge. <laughs> That's right. People tended to come up to you. What the, what the heck are you doing with a fridge? But <laughs> I, I'm pretty certain if I'd gone into a pub in Maidenhead with a fridge, nobody would have dared approach me, you know. No. It's true. It is a fabulous country, Ireland, yeah. for that. I mean, yeah. if you want to be left alone, it's not the place to go. 
<laughs> no. I went into a tiny pub just outside of Galway, my wife and I. There were two fellows sitting in the bar, and we went in between them to open and say, yeah. is there any food? And, and the yeah. man said, I said, so I'll go and have some food and uh, two pints of Guinness. And we were sitting there with the Guinness waiting for the food to come. And one Irishman sort of leant round us and said, he's a brave fella. And I said, why, is the food not good? He went, no, no, just walking like that straight into an IRA pub. And I froze. I mean, yeah. I, oh, yeah. oh, shit. And then he said, I'm just yeah. fucking with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is was good. wicked. Yeah. But very funny. I have been in an IRA pub, though, in Belfast. Really? Again, slightly by mistake. And I was when I was promoting the book, um, Round Ireland with a Fridge, they, they, there's a programme you do in, used to do in Belfast called The Jerry Kelly Show. And they were, that was great fun. It was a live show. But I think I went, I, where I was staying, I thought, oh, I fancy a pint. Oh, you know, you do a live show, and it's, it was quite a late-night show, and... I still had this energy that I needed to, to get rid of, sort of thing. Adrenaline had been flowing. So I thought, well, I'll go in the pub near where I'm staying. And I just walked into a pub, you know. And I was chatting to, to all these guys, and it just became apparent that this was a, quite a staunch IRA pub. And, and, and I almost got the sort of version of what you got without the joke, which is Brave Fellow. Yeah. And... But they did know about, I told them what I'd been doing with the round, they knew about Round Island with a fridge, actually, and they thought that was funny. Plus, they said, I did ask them as we, I had great time with them, but they kind of said, we would have known. We would, we would have known, you know, straight, straight away if, if you were an informant or if you were something, because you, you obviously would have, would have made some effort to disguise the fact that you, you know, you're clearly... <laughs> Clearly an Englishman who's wandered into a pub. <laughs> so they were paranoid about informants and things like that, you know, and, yeah. uh, and that would, would not have gone down well. No, um, no. The fact is I did inform on them, but that's yes. not. <laughs> and you were in full uniform at the time. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic, Tony. Um, yeah, I'm going to put that state-run store Mm. And the and the restaurant. And the it's restaurant. Absolutely awful. What did you eat uh, just before we finish? What did you eat? I ate something that upset my stomach as well. <laughs> That's the other thing is don't go in there. Well, they're not there anymore. But the, the, whatever it was, I got the runs and it was a disaster. But there I felt are. I needed to go there as, as, as I'd, a couple of people said, don't go in them. And I thought, well, I've got to go in them. You know, I'm in Moldova. And, but I think I had a kind of broth type thing in the restaurant. And and you got the runs. I did. Yeah. That's communism for you. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us, and uh, it's been really good fun. My pleasure. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Tony Hawks. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you have the time, we'd love it if you would rate us and leave a review. Thank you. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search at MyTCPod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, until next time, anyone for tennis? <laughs>